We do this practice, the aim of this practice, the goal of practice, of all spiritual life, is to free ourselves from suffering. The suffering of wanting what we don't have, trying to get rid of what we do have, and the suffering of denial and struggle. Yet in our struggle, we can all too easily lose contact with the possibility of freedom. We see only the struggle. We see only one side of the equation. And in a way, this is somewhat inevitable, especially at the beginning of the practice, when it seems that our suffering becomes magnified. It shows us where we are caught or holding in ways that we didn't even imagine before. You might have thought you came here fairly free of tension and problems. And what have you discovered? Oh my goodness, it's worse than I thought. There's a saying that goes around um, Dharma retreats. I don't know where it came from, but it says, all self-knowledge begins with bad news. Mm -hmm. And the first few days of a retreat are sort of like the bad news arriving. The first thing we see is all of our rough edges. And in the seeing of this, our tendency is to give time and attention, and we encourage that to some degree. But we can all too easily give more attention than to, to the struggle, than to recognizing those moments when the struggle is absent. Genuine moments of freedom from struggle, moments of peace and wholeness, we can easily overlook these moments. After all, they hold no drama. They have no past. They have no personal history. They may be difficult or impossible to describe, even to ourselves. And so we don't recognize these moments as anything special. Instead, we are mesmerized by the promise of a future freedom, which will be incredibly special. Our freedom will be announced by a hallelujah chorus. Buddhas will arrive and descend and surround us. Or maybe you have your own version of this, whatever it is. A very special freedom awaits us in the future. And like Sisyphus, I read the other night the story of Sisyphus with his rock. We can become so obsessed with the rock of our suffering that this does seem to take up the focus of our entire attention. But I'd like to suggest that we not forget those moments of freedom and that by shifting our attention ever so slightly, we can begin to recognize more clearly actual moments of freedom. We can begin to highlight them with our attention. We can begin to see the possibility of opening to an awareness of present freedom. We can actively cultivate the habit of living with present freedom. 
Now, what gets, in the, what gets in the way of doing this? How do we overlook this? Well, one of the large areas of, of the th- kinds of things which gets in the way are all the expectations and ideas that we have about the spiritual path and what it means to be a spiritual person. We all come here with a huge array, probably, of ideas. So I'd like to mention a few of what these expectations are, or beliefs are, and how they might be in the way. One is the belief that I am not worthy of spiritual attainment. I am not worthy of spiritual attainment. It seems as Westerners practicing in an Asian form, we come to this with deeply ingrained identifications with notions of sin and guilt and spiritual unworthiness, of original sin, And these ideas are not helpful because in the eyes of a Buddha or of any enlightened being, all people are equally worthy. I'd like to read something from a man who was genuinely realized, Nisargadatta. He says, there are teachers who, after much effort and penance, have fulfilled their ambitions and secured higher levels of consciousness, and they are usually acutely conscious of their standing. They grade people into hierarchies, ranging from the lowest non-achiever to the highest achiever. But to me, all are equal. Differences in appearance and expression are there, but they do not matter. Just as the shape of a gold ornament does not affect the gold, so does a person's essence remain unaffected. Where this sense of equality is lacking, it means that reality has not been touched. In reality, we are all equally spiritually worthy. And we are adopting a very limited view when we sit in judgment of our own spiritual worthiness or lack of it. So that is one belief or expectation that does not serve us when we come to spiritual life. Another belief is, runs something like this, that I'm not the kind of person who could possibly realize what the Buddha did. I'm too worldly. I enjoy life. I don't suffer enough. (laughs) I have a family. I'm too old. You know, we're all doing this practice as lay people. We're not monastics. And we may judge ourselves that that somehow takes us away from the possibility of realizing what the Buddha realized. These beliefs limit what possibilities we can be open to. But they're just beliefs. The truth is that the practice, when we engage in it, 
balances our consciousness, balances the mind. Moment to moment attention in itself brings balance to the mind. It opens us where we are closed. It calms us where we are agitated. It energizes us where we are dull. And it frees us where we are caught. So whatever we believe about ourselves really has no bearing. No matter where we start, all possibilities are open to us. The potential to realize what the Buddha did is equally available to every one of us. Another belief is the belief that being spiritual, taking up a spiritual life, takes you away from worldly involvement. It makes you detached, indifferent to the world's suffering. Very common belief, and maybe one that you have entertained as you sat here feeling, well, this is too different from my ordinary life. Is this going to take me away from being in the world? Well, no. This is practice, and it's practice for the world. Before we can relate to the world's suffering, the world's pain, we must first learn to relate to our own. If we cannot relate to the pain in our knee, how in the world are we going to relate to the pain of the homeless or of the dying? Many of you know the Vietnamese monk and peace worker Thich Nhat Hanh, very articulate spokesman for how to bring this practice into the world, into peacemaking, into resolving conflict. And he was in Berkeley, where I live, uh, several months ago. It was um, after the war had started. And he spoke to a very large crowd one night, about 3,000 people in Berkeley, and was speaking to people who are engaged in working for peace in the world. And he basically said that, as wonderful as the work was that they were all doing, that we all need to take peace work another step. He said, it's all very fine to write letters of protest, to George Bush or to anyone with whom we don't agree. But until we can learn how to write a love letter to George Bush, our work is not complete. That there will never be peace as long as we cannot truly love our enemies, truly engage them in friendly dialogue. So in a way, what we are doing here is learning how to love our very own demons, our very own hindrances, our very own obstacles, to make friends with them. And in that way, we can then begin the very challenging task of making peace with our difficulties in the world. I like the way the Dalai Lama expresses his relationship with the Chinese people. He says, my friends, the enemy Chinese. 
The fourth belief or expectation about spirituality I'd like to mention is the belief or expectation that liberation or freedom can be found only after many years or lifetimes of hard practice. This belief may prevent you from noticing the already present freedom staring you in the face. It is always available now. So how to bring more awareness to the freedom which is already present? Freedom lies in letting go. So I'd like to speak about this letting go in a number of different ways. One of the mind's strongest tendencies is to draw conclusions about everything. And I know you've noticed this since you've been sitting here. Based on what it likes and what it doesn't like, the mind draws a conclusion. How many conclusions have you drawn in the course of being here about yourself, about the other people, about this place, about the teachers, about this retreat? If you made a list of all of your conclusions, you would be seeing the actual bars of your self-constructed prison. Nothing else has imprisoned you with your conclusions. You've done the job yourself. They are imprisoning because they keep our minds closed, our attention very limited. And the direction of this practice and the call of freedom is to keep an open mind, to live with fewer conclusions, with less certainty, to take refuge in not knowing. Every moment you can let go of a conclusion and come to a place of reserving judgment, of not knowing, is a moment of actual freedom. The more we can release our treasured beliefs, opinions, and conclusions, the freer we are. We don't have to take on a whole new set of beliefs in this practice. We only have to let go of those which we hold to with such certainty. Another way in which we keep ourselves imprisoned is through our identification with our personal story and our personal drama. Here's an Ojibwe saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the time I'm being carried on great winds across the sky. Can we keep that perspective on our personal drama? Being free is seeing the larger perspective, remembering that there is more at work in our lives than our subjective wants, emotions, likes, and dislikes. Indeed, that our personal drama is fairly insignificant in the larger context of the vastness of this world. This means looking at our tendency to try to always control what happens in our lives, to control other people, and to control the outcome. 
actually a discovery that I have made is that my life works a lot better when I'm not so busy controlling. My present life is nothing as I ever imagined it. I didn't grow up thinking, oh, I'm going to teach meditation. That was not what was given to me at all. And it seems that ever since I got engaged with Dharma practice and learned to let go, that my life has gotten incredibly more wonderful and that it is in some measure a... uh, equated to the equated to the letting go of control we think that giving up control will bring disaster disorder chaos but actually it's just the opposite we can afford to relax to not know to let go We talk a lot about letting go, and I'd like to read something that really expresses it in a very colorful way, and this is by Atran Sumedho. Maybe some of you have heard this before. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Madhyamika and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, (laughs) just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being a simple earthworm letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we only have these simple poverty-stricken practices. So can we let go? letting go of our investment in our personal drama, letting go of our opinions and our beliefs and our conclusions about everything, taking refuge and not knowing so much. There is enormous freedom in this. Can we see that? Can we begin to appreciate that? Now, it's impossible to speak about freedom, it seems, without also speaking about renunciation. 
The word renunciation is often used to refer to a way of life in which one has removed oneself from the world and taken vows of celibacy and aloneness and silence. But I'd like to talk about renunciation in a different way. I'd like to use the word as uh, meaning more a letting go, not of worldly life itself, but of everything in our minds, in our hearts, which separates us. Separates us from being fully present with ourselves and separates us from other people. This is renunciation. In this meaning, it is not the outer form which is important, but the inner experience. It seems it is the plight of most human beings to commonly feel separate and isolated. And in response, as human beings, we have invented many different social forms and learn many ways to try to overcome or alleviate that very real sense of separation. We have intimate relationships, we have family life, we have communities of like-minded people, we have fraternities, we have clubs. We look to these forms to help us overcome our feelings of isolation and separation. And if we are lucky, they do to some extent. They do help us to feel more connected. But these forms, these social forms, cannot by their very nature do the whole job. Because the cause of our basic sense of separation is not in our social arrangements, but in our minds and hearts. The belief in separation itself is deeply ingrained in all of us. This is from Sazaki Roshi. We think that somehow this self of ours is separate from the world. We look upon the world as an object, and that is the basis for our illness. We think that the world and ourselves are different, but in reality they are one thing. When you look upon the world as an object, then there appears this personal self. And this self is always thinking, how can I become one? How can I be not left out of the world? But in reality, the world will never leave you out. It is always including you. It is only because you get attached to the personal fixed self that you start worrying about being left out. When you really know how to get along with the world, coming to a truly friendly relationship with this world, then you will never worry about being left out. But when you are attached to a fixed individual self, then you will forever be in a state of insecurity, worrying that you will be abandoned by everybody. The belief in separation is deeply ingrained, and yet it too is something that we can begin to let go of. And by even entering into the practice, 
paying attention on a moment-to-moment way in which we're doing, that sense of separation begins to slip away. And as it does, it may even seem startling or strange or a little scary. What happens when we let go? We go into unfamiliar territory. We open to what is unknown. What is known is the past. And where does the past reside? How are we in contact with the past? The past resides in the mind. The mind is the repository of the past. You could even say the mind is the past. To dwell in the mind is to dwell in the past. And the direction of all spiritual life is to move into the unknown. To be free is to go where the mind cannot enter. Freedom has no history, no past. It is only born from and in the present. It cannot be strategized. It can only be surrendered to. So for most of us, letting go comes in flashes. We get sometimes startling, sometimes subtle glimpses of what it means to be free, to come into wholeness and presence. Just as the Buddha, in the story that Christina told last night, remembered that moment in his childhood when he was suddenly present and whole and free. We move through our anxiety, through our fear, and through sometimes a kind of trance-like numbness. And in a moment, we may come into greater spaciousness, greater aliveness, greater clarity, and perhaps an unfamiliar lightness. And so unaccustomed are we to this that we can feel quite vulnerable, quite disoriented, a little shaky. The aliveness and openness may be a little scary, and that's okay. Unaccustomed freedom is sort of like unaccustomed good health. It takes getting used to. But eventually we develop a preference for this taste of freedom, just as we do for good health over a period of time. This taste of freedom is very sweet, and it leads us on with greater inspiration and commitment to keep looking, to keep letting go of all that binds us and separates us. And this is always possible to us. This moment of freedom is always possible. And in our struggle and in our focus on all the objects of our suffering, we can easily overlook these moments. There's a um, Chinese master in San Francisco named Master Hua, who expresses his realization in these words. 
not speaking very good English, he looked for English words to use, and he came up with, everything's okay. Everything's okay. And when he says it, you really believe it, you know? And one of his disciples said about his philosophy, everything's okay is a very disciplined state of mind wherein one observes the rise and fall of all conditioned things with complete detachment. It is a place of no place. And yet without leaving this detachment, one can be totally involved in life. Another expression of realization, of understanding freedom, comes from Nisargadatta. Just like emerging from sleep or a state of rapture, you feel rested, and yet you cannot explain why and how you come to feel so well. In the same way with realization, you feel complete, fulfilled, free from pleasure and pain, and yet not always able to explain what happened, why, and how. You can put it only in negative terms. Nothing is wrong with me any longer. It is only by comparison with the past that you know that you are out of it. Otherwise, you are just yourself. So simple, so direct, so completely available to all of us, those moments when we know we are complete, we are whole, we are just ourselves. So that's all I wanted to say tonight. So maybe we could sit together for a few minutes. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 24, 1991. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.